One of the things we know is that spine problems, especially low back problems, are a huge issue both in the United States as well as around the world. In the United States alone, we spend over $100 billion trying to treat people for low back pain, and that's just in direct cost. And one of the reasons this is so expensive because we often don't know what's wrong with the person in a very objective way. You know, our treatments are more in terms of trial and error. And uh, what we're trying to do at the Spine Research Institute is trying to bring objective uh, engineering techniques uh, to the table so we can understand quantitatively what is what is wrong with them. And if you understand what's wrong with them, then you can understand both how to prevent those injuries and how to treat them. So that's what we do at the Spine Research Institute. Welcome to There's a Better Way, a podcast series focused on exploring how operational excellence principles can provide solutions in your personal and professional life. Each episode, Dr. Arvind Chandrasekharan, professor and academic director at The Ohio State University Fisher College of Business, will sit down with a prominent expert or faculty leader to discuss problems we face in our world today. This program is brought to you by the Master of Business Operational Excellence. Welcome to There is a Better Way. I'm here with uh, Dr. Bill Maris, Executive Director and Scientific Director of the Spine Research Institute at The Ohio State University. Welcome to the program, Bill. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here. Bill, can you tell us a little bit about your background and, and what do you do at the Spine Research Institute? Yeah, sure. Um, my, uh, my background is really uh, uh, started in engineering. Uh, my uh, background degree is in systems engineering. And, um, you know, my interest was trying to understand how to prevent musculoskeletal injuries uh, in the workplace, particularly uh, the back. And uh, I started out exploring ways to identify risk from the back from a biomechanical standpoint. And then I learned how complex this was uh, in terms of trying to understand those causal pathways. Uh, so we started applying engineering techniques to um, these biomedical and bioengineering problems. And we found we could make some headway that way. And then once we started finding that we could actually make some headway on identifying these causal pathways, uh, we started taking the, the same information and applying it to ways to fix people when they're, once they're hurt. And that led us into, you know, personalized medicine type of uh, structures. Um, in general, you know, what the Spine Research Institute does is um, we try and apply engineering techniques to um, spine problems. We try and look at it as an engineer as opposed to simply looking at it as a medical problem. And that's given us a more quantitative understanding of what's happening. Okay. And, and why is this uh, spine, spine problem a work problem? I mean, tell us more about it because we all like again have uh, or get, get immune because of this uh, back injuries. Why is this an important problem? Well, that's exactly right, Arvind. Um, as a matter of fact, if you look at back problems in general, the magnitude is enormous. Um, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, you know, 80% of us will get back problems uh, sometime during our lifetime. And, you know, any given year at work, about 25% of the population will have a back problem. And then any given day, five to 6% of the people will have a back problem. And, you know, most of the time, these back problems resolve pretty quickly. But for a good chunk of people, um, they become chronic, which means they last for over three months. And that's usually where the problems really, really get expensive. And we also know that this is related to the type of work that people do. Uh, we know that that's a big risk factor. There's all kinds of reasons why 
we think people get back problems, but we know work exposure is a, a big part of that. Uh, and so, you know, what we're trying to do through ergonomic interventions is to try and figure out how to how to design work so people don't have to ex- increase their exposure to, to back problems at work. So going back to this work problem, this could be a, a worker in a production line. It could be a nurse in a, in a hospital. It could be even a, an IT worker sitting in his office for several hours and working on a computer, right? Yes, that's exactly right. So, you know, we always think of heavy manual material handling being a risk factor, uh, and it certainly is. We know that, you know, people who do construction, people who do work in factories, things like that have a higher risk of back disorders. But uh, when you look at the national statistics through the Bureau of Labor Statistics, we know that it's really, you know, uh, nurses and patient handlers actually have the highest risk of back problems in America today. And uh, we we also know that, it, you know, nobody's really immune. Even people working at computer workstations like we do, um, we are at risk of back injuries also. And just to give you an idea of how disabling this is, um, you know, there were some recent articles in the, the Lancet, the, the journal The Lancet, that showed that um, back problems are the most disabling condition known to mankind worldwide. And they looked at over 300 different medical conditions, and they found that back injuries are not only a disabling condition today, and by disabling, we mean the most lost days, but they've been this way since, you know, the 90s. So uh, we really haven't increased our ability to to fix people over all that time. Mm, that's interesting, Bill. In fact, like, uh, what is the, if, if somebody has a back problem right now, what is the current state of medical diagnosis? Like, how would they identify, okay, this is a problem for me? And, and where do you think that, that is lacking? Yeah, and that's a, a great a great question. Um, you know, if you have a back problem today, um, there's probably a 10 to 15% chance that the physician could tell you what's wrong. You know, most of the time you're lumped into this category of back pain called nonspecific back pain, which means they really don't know. And, you know, if you look at imaging, you know, a lot of people get MRIs for back pain. There's only a 10 to 15% chance that imaging will tell you what's wrong. And the rest of the time, they really don't know. And so the problem with treatment for low back pain is it goes through this trial and error process, which is very lengthy and uh, very, very expensive. So the first thing they'll do is they'll, you know, give you muscle relaxers. And if that doesn't work, you'll get physical therapy. And if that doesn't work, you get injections. And eventually you go through these process of uh, treatments, eventually leading to spine surgery. And if you get there, there's less than a 50% chance that the spine surgery will work. So right now, everything is trial and error. And the one thing we know is the longer you have back pain, uh, the higher the probability it'll become chronic or long-lasting back pain. So what the science is really trying to do is trying to figure out, okay, what is this person's problem and how do we get to the root of that problem as quickly as we can, as opposed to going through this trial and error process as we do right now. Hmm. So our listeners out there, like if they're listening to our podcast, they're wondering that all their expenses and all their treatments, there's only a 15% chance that they're going to get it right. The doctors and and the 85% chance that it may not work and they're spending more healthcare costs on it. Well, that's correct, especially for the serious ones. Like I said earlier, you know, within a couple of weeks, most back pain resolves itself. But for a good chunk of the population, it doesn't resolve. And these are, this is where all the money goes. As a matter of fact, it's almost like the Pareto principle. We found in some of our studies that 
16% of the low back cases are responsible for 80% of the costs. Hmm. They're typically people who've had a, a back problem. They can't get it fixed. They keep on you know, going back to their doctor and they can't figure out what's wrong. And so they, they go through this trial and error process that I just described. And that's where it gets really, really expensive. And, and, you know, and it opens up the susceptibility to, you know, having to be on opiates, which leads to all kinds of other problems. So this, this is where all the money goes, is, is just trying to treat this smaller percentage of chronic low back pay, uh, pain patients. So, so from what a back pain used to be, now you're talking about a social problem and an epidemic like opioid arising because of these things. So, so what, 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 are, what can be done differently, Bill? Because you, you mentioned that this is what the state of the current uh, uh, medical uh, uh, diagnosis is, and it's only 15% successful. So what is SRI or other uh, institutes doing to make it different in a way that you have better probability of catching them early? Yeah, so, you know, this is... Uh, our motivation is just trying to, you know, help people and also figure out how to reduce these costs because the costs we're talking about are enormous. You know, just in the United States alone, we spend over $100 billion a year just in direct cost treating people with low back pain. And, um, you know, this is, uh, this is an enormous cost to society. And if you add on all the indirect costs, you know, which is like two to three times that, this becomes a huge burden. You know, we spend as much money treating people for back pain as we do treating people for cancer, you know, which is, uh, which is awful, you know? And so what we're doing at the spine research Institute is we're trying to take engineering techniques. And as I said, help to quantify what's going on with back problems. And, you know, so we work very closely with uh, all the physicians here on campus. And this is an idea we had about, you know, five years ago, uh, which was uh, an outgrowth of what we've been doing for the past 30 years, which is let's try and quantify the biomechanics of back pain. And now we're expanding that to go way beyond the biomechanics. And so what our approach really is, is we really have a three-phase approach to the research. The first thing we do is surveillance, uh, which means that we go into the, into the workplace and we look at what people are exposed to in terms of their, you know, their motion, their biomechanics. And so we'll take all kinds of measurements of people at work and try and see what's happening. Another component of the surveillance is we go into the clinics and we'll look at the patients and we'll, we'll use, um, you know, wearables on them. We'll put, you know, sensors on them and have them play video games with their backs and try and see how they respond and, and what the status of their, their, uh, their motion is. Because we really believe that, um, you know, you can tell a lot just by watching the way people move. If you simply look at people with back pain, um, we know that they move very, very cautiously, very, very differently. They're very stiff. They're not very fluid in their motions. And, you know, most people could tell this just by watching them, but they can't quantify it. What we're trying to do is quantify it. And so that's what I mean by this uh, surveillance component. We're trying to figure out exactly, you know, how much is too much? How much is too much exposure in the workplace and also in the clinic if they're impaired too much? When do you have to do something about it and when will it resolve itself on its own? So that's really the first component of our, our research plan is simply watch people and measure people, measure what they do. The next component is you know, what we call our laboratory studies where we really bring them here to, you know, we have three laboratories at the SRI and we'll bring them you know, both uh, workers as well as patients in the laboratory and we'll just try and replicate what they're exposed to in the workplace or what they're exposed to in the clinic when they're playing these video games with their back. Yet in the laboratory, we could take much more elaborate measurements. 
So we'll put sensors all over the body. We'll take, um, you know, for example, electromography or EMG. We'll put that in the trunk muscles and we'll have them stand on force plates and we'll, we'll do things like, you know, use motion capture, which are, you know, basically, you know, video cameras all around the room. You know, we'll have like 72 uh, motion capture infrared cameras that will track their motions down to, you know, the width of a, a human hair. So we get very, very precise information about how they move. And so that way you could document exactly what is unique about this particular person. And then the third component is we take that information and we feed it into our models. And by models, I mean, these are computer models. So we can make a model of you or me or anybody. And these models are 3D uh, computer models where you can look in the spine, see what's unique about that person. We'll pull in things like their, you know, their uh, imaging, such as their MRIs or their CT scans, which will have all their unique characteristics like you know, osteophytes and bulging discs or whatever. That could be represented in the model and we'll try and see what kinds of forces are imposed up and down that spine. And the whole idea is understand what's out of whack in terms of the forces that are imposed on those tissues compared to a normal person. And that's the way we get to the bottom of, you know, what's wrong with a particular person or what's wrong with the work they're doing. Uh, and it's all based around how these forces are imposed on the spine. Mm -hmm. And we call this, we call these personalized assessments. So, you know, we could, you know, once we get that information about how people are moving, how they're using their muscles and the and how they are moving, um, we can build a model specific to that person that's unique to that person and figure out what's wrong with them. And more importantly, we could work with the physicians and the surgeon to say, okay, if this person needs surgery, now we could do the surgery in the model before you ever touch the person and figure out how to, you know, what's going to work and what, what's not going to work before you ever expose them to the surgeries. This is very useful because <clears throat> what you're doing is you're taking the subjectivity out of uh, a patient. You're, in the current state is like a patient is going to be asked, okay, what's the pain level? And then on a scale of one to 10, instead of do, using that, you're actually using um, a more objective approach of like identifying these pain and then treating them appropriately. From that standpoint, yeah. like, I think like, uh, is this scalable? Because think about this, like you can do this in a small set of patients in, a, in the local institutions or even partnering with uh, all these physicians at Ohio State. Do you think this can be scalable to the, the national extent, though? Yeah, we do. As a matter of fact, one of the things we're working on right now is trying to figure out, you know, how to do this in a really big way. You know, so all the, all the time and effort go into converting from these images of people's, people's CTs and MRIs into the models. And what we found in, you know, our studies is the the devil's in the detail. And one of our favorite sayings around here lately has been people are messy because everybody's different. And right now the medical community treats everybody, like I said, according to this trial and error, of they try treatment one, if that doesn't work, they go to try, try treatment two. And that there's a risk to that because the longer they go on, the more the, the risk that becomes chronic. And so I guess in terms of your question about scalability, it has to get to that point. And yes, we do believe that it will be scalable in the next uh, couple of years here. So we can get to the bottom of these messy people and figure out exactly what's wrong with them. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, some of the things we're working towards right now are uh, what we call phenotyping. We're trying to phenotype different types of back pain because we believe that there's no common back pain. We believe that there's thousands of different kinds of back pain and we're never going to figure out how to fix people until we can categorize them and identify exactly how to do that. 
And so, you know, one of the one of the reasons we're trying to scale this up is so we could use things like, you know, machine learning and and artificial intelligence to help phenotype these people so we could figure out what's going to work for different people. So yeah, in a nutshell, I think it is scalable and I think it will be scalable in the next couple of years here. Okay. And you, I can't have a podcast with you, Bill, uh, without having a conversation about the Iron Man suit. What I mean, <laughs> the, um, the powered uh, exos- exoskeleton, right? So tell us more about like, I know that there's been an, um, a buzzing trend of again, using robots or using these Iron Man suits that people can wear in a way to avoid uh, back injuries. Tell us more about like what's going on in that technology front. Yeah, so the the new hot thing in in prevention, and it has been for the past couple of years, are exoskeletons. So exoskeletons are these these structures that you wear, um, and supposedly the idea is instead of your joints and your muscles supporting the load, that you let this exoskeleton support your load. And um, there's two different styles of them. There are what we call passive ones, which are just like, you know, springs that are uh, included in the exoskeleton. And so as the load gets heavier, the spring um, supports more and more of the load. And then the second category of these are called active exoskeletons. And these are just starting to come out of the market. Uh, The active exoskeletons are ones where they actually have motors uh, around the various joints of the body. And these are very, very elaborate. They're, They're like wearing a robot and you could dial these up to whatever gain you want. So for an example, you could apply, you know, if you're trying to lift a hundred pound load, it'll feel like five pounds to you and the, and the exoskeleton will produce the other 95%. And while everybody thinks these are the new silver bullet, uh, our studies are showing that um, they get a long way to go. Mm. So uh, these things, you were, some of our studies are actually showing uh, both with the passive exoskeletons as well as some of the um, the active exoskeletons, that the loads in the spine are actually larger uh, when you're when you're wearing these things as opposed to when you're not wearing them, which was kind of a surprise to us. But it's not true in all situations. What we're finding is it's very context dependent. Mm-hmm. So you know, exoskeleton might be very beneficial if you're lifting something, for example, from you know, the floor up until waist height or something like that. You could take that same exoskeleton and now apply it, lifting something in some awkward position, like lifting it over to the side, moving away from your body two feet or something like that. And it may be terrible. You might have twice the load on the spine that you have when you're not wearing it. And the way, the reason we think this is so is because um, we describe this is a lot of these exoskeletons do not align with your joints. And what I mean by that is it's almost like dancing with a really bad partner. So, you know, it's, it, they can't anticipate the way you're going to move. And when you're dancing, you know, good dancers sort of read each other's mind almost, and they know exactly what's going to happen and what you're going to do next, where an exoskeleton can't do that. They're going to only move the way the physics of the exoskeleton let them move, and you're going to start fighting it at certain places where it doesn't align with your joints. And so that's where the research is going, is trying to figure out how these guys uh, coordinate with the person, how these exoskeletons can not only include the physical dimensions of the person, but also the anticipatory dimensions of the person, how they think and do they trust the exoskeleton and what are their emotions when they're interacting with these exoskeletons. Those are the, are the components of these exoskeletons that are going to make them work and make them work well with the person. 
So I think we'll get there. But what I'm saying is we're not there yet. Mm. And then once they do get there, I think this will change everything. Yeah. In the workplace, in the workplace you know, you'll be, all of a sudden be able to lift tremendous loads and you'll be able to do you know, the work of many people by yourself. And also when you think about it in our healthcare system, you know, now all of a sudden you have a nurse, you know, maybe you have a 110 pound nurse who's got to maneuver a two or 300 pound patient. You know, that's impossible to do right now. And that's why they get, have such high rates of injury. But now all of a sudden you'll have them being able to do that. And also people are anticipating that exoskeletons can be used to help uh, people who are disabled. For example, in Asia, a lot of exoskeletons are being used for rehabilitation Hmm. where the patient actually wears them and it helps them learn, relearn how to walk and relearn how to move. And so there's tremendous potential for these, but we have to be cautious as we apply these to society because they've still got a ways to go and you don't want to hurt people before um, we figure out how to make them useful. Yeah. And this is a common trend, by the way, Bill, like the technology is not the be all and end all. There are certain ways that technology can be useful, but it can also harm you. So it's, that's where you come in to say, okay, here are some ways that exoskeleton can be useful, but there are other ways that you've got to be cautious and we have ways to go. Bill, I want to like also go back. I know we are running out of time. So I want to go back and, um, and ask you this question because a lot of our listeners out there, again, most of them, I would guess, are spending hours and hours of every day uh, sitting and working in their offices, in their desk. Are there any best practices from your standpoint that they can do actually to improve their ergonomics and avoid uh, being a chronic back injury patient? Are there some things that you can recommend? Yeah. So, uh, you know, um, office environments are a very interesting uh, ergonomic issue. Um, as a matter of fact, a lot of people um, have back pain because or neck pain because they're sitting there, you know, looking at their computers all day long and trying to interact with it. and They don't move around. And a lot of people don't realize that it's those postures that they're assuming while they're at their desks that are really uh, causing the problem. And of all the issues we've been talking about, this is probably one of the easier ones to fix. And there's just a couple basic principles you have to remember uh, when you're trying to, you know, accommodate people in, in seated workstations or desk type workstations. One is the eyes lead the body. And what I mean by that is if you take a look at what people try and accommodate when they're interacting with their workstation, you know, they're going to, they're going to, their vision really leads the rest of their postures. So if they can't see their screen, what are they going to do? They're going to stick their head out almost like in this turtle position and they're going to do whatever they can to try and focus on their vision. And then that will put them in a very awkward posture because they'll lean forward They'll hunch their neck over, they'll hunch their shoulders, they'll move their arms to accommodate the keyboard. And, you know, that's usually the root of all the problems. And so as an ergonomist, what you've got to think about is, you know, how do you get this person's eyes in the right place? And you do that by having the screen at the right height. You get that by having the screen at the right distance from the person. And you look at, you observe what they, how their vision has to be accommodated and then you figure out where the seat is relative to that and where the keyboard is relative to their vision, and you, you work backwards from that. So that's the first thing that you do, and that could solve a lot of the problems. Um, the other thing, the other co- component of a uh, workspace is um, these static work postures where they're just sitting there for hours and hours uh, leads to problems because our muscles get tired. You know, it's almost like holding a weight in front of your body, you know, just holding it out for long periods of time. 
you know that that's going to hurt after a while. Well, that's what you're doing to your back. That's what you're doing to your, your neck. That's what you're doing to your legs and your arms. And so what we encourage people to do is, you know, get up every you know hour or every hour and a half and move around. And there are programs now that will remind you to do this. Another way to do this is with, you know, alternating before, between seated workstations and standing workstations. There are a lot of people who produce, you know, desks where you push a button and uh, the, uh, the desk will go up to standing height for you. And, uh, you, you know, if you look at the literature, it's very unclear whether this, this helps or not, but there's, there's no evidence that it hurts. Okay. I was so, going to ask you that. Yeah, I was going to ask you yeah. because of this whole trend of standing. And even like I've seen workstations with a treadmill. Like we have, right. Uh, so are, are, there, are there any evidence from a research standpoint that that definitely helps? And yeah. I'm assuming the yeah. answer right now is not. It's mixed. Not really. And, you know, everybody's thinking that if it gets you up and moving around and, you know, getting blood flowing in, their, in those muscles, it's good. But there have been very few formalized research projects that may be able to demonstrate this. Okay. So the uh, be be best thing to do at this point is to make sure that your eyes, eye levels are perfect, eye levels are in line with the computer screens, and take short breaks in a way that you're not actually sitting and staring at the screen, but moving, that's going to definitely help in minimizing some of these back injuries. That summarizes it uh, perfectly. Okay. Hey, I really want to thank you for taking your time, Bill. This has been a pleasure talking to you and learning more about the importance of uh, SRI and how back problems are actually like take on to a next level in, in terms of solving and, and making it much more individualistic. So thank you so much for taking some time. Well, thank you, Irvin. I appreciate the, uh, your time. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of There's a Better Way. To listen to our other episodes and for more information on the Master of Business and Operational Excellence, please visit go.osu.edu backslash M-B-O-E.